Let's talk development. Episode 12. Hello, thanks for tuning into this episode of CDPR's Let's Talk Development podcast series. My name is Anna Malkani and I'll be your host today. I've been working in the tech and policy space for about a decade, specifically on how Pakistan can develop a policy and regulatory landscape that supports digital inclusion and financial inclusion for both citizens and businesses. It's a pleasure to have Monas Rahman with us today. Monas is a seasoned entrepreneur and also a leader and mentor in Pakistan's tech industry. Aside from being a successful businessman, Monas's work is really interesting because of how he's using tech to develop new products and services to solve some really difficult development challenges. When it comes to digital progress, Pakistan is really a mixed bag. There's a lot to celebrate and some great success stories, but macroeconomic headwinds, regulatory issues, and digital inclusion and literacy all remain persistent challenges. According to the Inclusive Internet Index 2022, Pakistan ranked last out of 22 countries in Asia. Availability of infrastructure, affordability, and digital literacy are some of the reasons behind our poor performance. And it's no surprise that digital inclusion is a far greater challenge for women. According to GSMA's Mobile Gender Gap Report 2023, Pakistan's gender gap in mobile phone ownership was the widest of all countries surveyed at 35%. For context, the South Asia average is 15%. And the gender gap in mobile internet usage is even greater at 38%. So we have seen some enabling initiatives from the public sector in recent years. For example, affordability in Pakistan, while it's still not enough, has improved somewhat. And the central bank has taken some interesting initiatives, including enabling cloud adoption and launching a micropayments gateway called RAS. But the policy and regulatory environment remains very challenging. Internet shutdowns and social media bans are just some of the issues which frequently affect businesses, freelancers, startups, and general users. On the positive side, however, Pakistan's tech sector continues to find a way to thrive against all odds. The number of freelancers continues to grow. We've had a number of startup success stories and increasing VC interest in Pakistan, although with some mixed outcomes, which we'll talk about later. The financial inclusion outlook is also encouraging. Mobile money has contributed to some advances in the last few years, and the state bank has now paved the way for digital banks. And I'm always just amazed to see how people in Pakistan are using online platforms in incredibly creative and productive ways. So I'm hoping in this episode to speak to Monas about some of these challenges and opportunities and how he sees the future of the digital space in Pakistan. So welcome, Monas. Thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure to be here and it's especially a pleasure to be here with you with you as as a moderator. Thank you. So, Monas, you have several interesting startups which are solving some tough development challenges. Can you talk a little bit about your experience on how tech startups in Pakistan can play a role in economic development, job creation and other development areas? Yeah, so look, you know the way I see it, I've been I've been doing this in Pakistan since what 2003. It's been it's been a lifetime. And when I came to Pakistan, we had about 1.8 million internet users and they were uh, largely connected to the internet through their office DSL lines, you know. So the office workers who are accessing from the office 
And I remember our jobs platform, when we launched in rosie.pk, we would see our traffic basically flatline to zero over the weekends. And after 5 or 6 p.m., again, the traffic would go down because people were accessing from from their office and like desktops and laptops. I'm talking about 2003. Now, now today, um, over 50% of adults in Pakistan have an internet-connected uh, smartphone. And we have lots of challenges that you highlighted, but I want to highlight some recent trends, which you know are probably going to be on the radar soon. I've been going through a lot of numbers and some very positive things have happened. Um, and they have laid this infrastructure where now you have uh, coming to very closely to ubiquitous access of uh, smartphones and online enabled services, uh, which we now have the ability to do in local languages with the various sort of channels like voice, et cetera. We now have a digital platform. It's a magic wand that we can put into the hands of everybody in Pakistan, every adult, um, and uh, we can also now span much lower down the pyramid in terms of uh, the ability to give interactive services, financial services, job services to uh, people who are not very educated and literate. And we can even help move the needle on, on, on you know, education because now you have a, the way, a way to distribute uh, content and learning and uh, services uh, across the country at a very low cost and the ability to collect payments and transfer money on the back of that. These are the strides that have been sort of made. So it's a magic wand that we're speaking about. And we've never had this in the history of the country. I'll give you an example. Uh, when we launched our jobs platform, rosie.pk, it was intended initially for IT professionals back in 2007 or six. And the reason was because IT professionals were online. So it was easy to build an online platform for IT professionals. Very soon thereafter, realized, hey, the market's much bigger than IT professionals and everybody else is coming online, you know, at the office. So we expanded the mandate of Rosie to all job sectors. And we saw tremendous growth. Rosie was the first VC-backed startup. Uh, we get, you know, over 40,000 job applications a day. We have over 100,000 employers who advertise jobs. We have um, uh, over... Uh, 10 million professionals and freelancers who are now applying for these jobs. And we've helped create over a million uh, jobs that have matched through our platform. Now, there's tremendous efficiency all on the back of a small team that has a website, right? So these are the sort of things you can do. But one of the things that was always a dream and was very hard to achieve until today was how do we help the 40 million less educated blue-collar workers, not just the 20 million educated white-collar workers, right? Because that's really where you make the dent. And today, because blue-collar workers um, who work with their hands, labor, you're talking about masons, technicians, like you know the plumbers, rickshaw drivers, they now have smartphones and they've become very avid users of these smartphones. So we recently ro launched rosegar.pk, which is a completely blue-collar, voice-activated, swipe-based jobs platform. And we have about 300,000 self-registered blue-collar workers who've taken their pictures, uploaded their ID cards, selfies, explained what they do, entered in their professions, who are now matching for jobs. This is un unimaginable. And now imagine if you can sprinkle on top of that financial services. All of a sudden, you have this ability to actually move the needle and change the lives of people uh, uh, that never had access in the past and now can access not just jobs beyond their town or the village, 
into urban areas, but really the world. So that's one side. Now, the other side is equally, equally large problem. Maybe larger is uh, 40% of your GDP of this country uh, comes from your SMEs and MSMEs. Chote Chote, these are very small sort of organizations. And they have been excluded from the economy, not just from a digital perspective, from a financial perspective. They don't get loans. They don't get credit. And as a result, our SMEs are stuck in this perpetual cash flow cycle. They don't grow because no one gives them credit. Banks don't give them credit. They're very hard to score. They're non-filers. They don't have documentation. They don't have collateral against which we can lend. And uh, so they're stuck. And compounded with that, there's so many digital use cases that can facilitate the operations and growth, sales, and marketing of SMEs, which they're largely not able to get. You know, it's like uh, Aesop, the fables, you know, you've got that um, crane who had this big sort of tube that it stuck its nose in and it could, it could, it could eat. But if you don't have that long nose, you can't eat, you'll starve to death. And this is Today, if you don't have access to a digitally collected smartphone with ability to collect and uh, send money online, you are basically being left behind uh, the potential of this magic wand that now we have at our sort of our disposal. So I'm working on a digitization of SMEs. I'm working on sort of a digital bank for SMEs, the retailers that they can transact and they can order from their suppliers and based on the footprints that they leave, they can get credit because we're credit scoring them, we're plugging them into financial institutions, and we're interconnecting them. So the hope is, it's a very lofty, ambitious goal, uh, is to interconnect SMEs through this e-commerce fiber and put in financial services that reliably score the footprints. So, uh, you know, together, if you, if you can increase the revenue and efficiencies of SMEs by just 10, 15%, and SMEs are 40% of your GDP. Just imagine what kind of impact you can have on the economy, on hiring, employment, et cetera. Great. So this kind of brings me to my next question, which is entrepreneurs and investors have become very interested in Pakistan as kind of the next frontier in terms of emerging markets. Um, and you hear a lot about how Pakistan is a hugely populous country and there's this big youth bulge and lots of inexpensive labor and all of that stuff. However, on the flip side, and you talked about this a little bit, Pakistan also has this very large population of last mile users yeah. who currently lack digital access and skills and the infrastructure has not reached them and access to devices is also pretty tough. So how do you view some of these challenges in the context of your startups, uh, which are often kind of targeting those last mile users who might not be connected at the moment? That's a great question. This is sort of what I've been struggling with through my entire career in Pakistan since 2003 is, yeah, we can build really cool things, but if uh, people aren't able to access them because they don't have smartphones or their internet in their area doesn't work, uh, you know, it's useless. And especially when you go to this sort of hostile field environment of retailers, the little stores, the bazaars, which you know, internet isn't working well, it's hot, a lot of people coming, the, the usability of this has to all account for this sort of, uh, you know, as I said, like a hostile environment. There are a lot of challenges, but it's amazing how much progress has been made by the country and what sort of things we can do today. And the classic example I just gave you, we are now helping drivers in outlying areas of the country 
find jobs through their smartphone in large urban areas. And there are so many people who are migrating now as a result of this interaction on their phone. So accessibility has definitely increased. We've got our challenges. About 30 million people in Pakistan are excluded from this sort of internet umbrella. They don't have a coverage of 3G or 4G. And they have very, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that they will because the financials don't make sense for the telcos. You have organizations like USF who are trying. But still, yeah. you've got about 30 million people who just are not underneath the shadow of the internet. Uh, but that aside, a country of 250 million people, it means 220 million people have potential access to the internet. And about 60-some percentage of adults today in Pakistan, and that's a number to look at. Uh, frequently, the numbers that's coded is a percentage of the population. But we've got a very young sort of a population. So if there's a person under 16 who has no internet access and a smartphone, well, that's because he can't get a SIM, you know? So the number of adults, if you look at it, I think it's like 65% of adults today in Pakistan, a poor third world country, more than half the population now has interconnect, internet connected smartphones. It's a very big deal. They're learning, use it, it's sort of spotty. But if you look at the high level impact, I mean, we can talk about this all the time and throw our, you know, numbers, but actually it's what's happening on the ground. And What's happened on the ground, financial inclusion, the number of bank accounts in Pakistan has grown dramatically over the last four years, dramatically. So we should pat ourselves on the back. Not the banks, though. The banks did very little of this. 90% of the financial accounts created last year, 90% of the growth came from mobile wallets. It came from smartphones. So our financial inclusion is being driven by large wallet players and mobile phone-based uh, accounts. And people now are getting acquainted with financial services for the first time in their life on mobile phones. And that's becoming the new norm. So now we have the ability to reach people that we couldn't. And, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough the ability to receive and send on your phone without having to hop in a car or a motorcycle, incur fuel costs and time. And especially when you talk about women a woman today in Pakistan is 38% less likely to own a mobile phone. And there are lots of reasons. I'd love to speak about that as well. Mm -hmm. But imagine convenience for a woman who isn't allowed or has no means to leave her house and now can all of a sudden transact. And not just transact, she can engage in e-commerce. She can build an e-commerce website and she can start to sell from home. So there are a lot of tools available. They might not have been realized. When you come back, your question was about this very interesting VC startup ecosystem. What's going on? Uh, the irony is that we have seen unprecedented growth over the last three years in a digital economy, in the last year alone. And uh, VCs are governed by this sort of international liquidity, how much capital is available in the market and asset classes and whether VC makes sense as an asset class with rising interest rates, all of that stuff. So VC saw a huge surge after a COVID and then now globally, it's seen a big halt. It's just come way down. I've got a graph on this as well. Yeah. Pakistani VC has come way down even more because we're a high risk sort of market. The rupee has devalued, uh, has, has, has devalued uh, over 50% against the dollar. So if I'm investing my dollars here, all of a sudden I've just lost 50%. It was hard enough for my startup to monetize to a level where the valuation made sense. Now it's twice as hard. So VC investment in Pakistan has really trickled. 
ironically, because our digital economy, as promised, as predicted, is now really taking off. And what do I mean by that? The number of borrowers in Pakistan for a long time, and you probably know this really well, that stagnated 1-2% range, right? The total number of borrowers, 1-2%. Well, guess what it was this year? The latest numbers, we had 10.5 million borrowers. That's 7.5%. So you've moved from 2% of the country for a very long time, we're stuck, no credit, to now 7.5%, and that number is growing very fast off the back of these nano. And they've been very healthy. They've been performing very well. The default rate, you know, for Jazz Cash, Easy Pass, and Nano Loans is roughly around the 5% range. Uh, so people are paying back and people are able to use the money. This same revolution is happening, is about to happen in an accelerated way for SMEs, which banks never had the courage or incentive to go and lend to because they could give a lot of money to the government and make easy returns. And who wants to go and score these little, little stores that don't have a sort of any uh, documentation? But now at scale, because of the footprints and digital interactions that we're interconnecting, we can very, very reliably credit score them. At Finja, the loans we gave to, you know, uh, what, over 50,000 loans we've given to the Kriana stores, our default rate was 0.4%. And they are very, very reliable, uh, easy to score if you have the right data. You don't need to collateral. And this has happened globally, Africa, everywhere else. But it's happening in Pakistan. So it's a bright outlook. So just as, and, and you know, e-commerce. E-commerce merchants registered with a bank uh, increased about 6x over the last three years. So the number of e-commerce merchants has also skyrocketed. E-commerce transactions have skyrocketed. If you look at the number of digital transactions in the country from three years ago, again, you'll see a very steep hockey stick curve. So all the indicators are right. The macro perception, VC, doom and gloom, the economy is in a horrible state, no doubt. But you have a quarter of a trillion dollar GDP that is surely, surely moving online. So even though your overall macro economy could be contracting offline economy, your online economy is grabbing a much larger share of that very quickly. And this tremendous opportunity to use this magic wand we have, VCs, don't get it because they have other sort of yeah. motivation. But we from Pakistan, we get it and we need to use this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think what's happening in the online space is very exciting. But I do want to hear from you, you know, going back also to that question of access to infrastructure and devices. There have been some policy initiatives such as laptop scheme, smartphone manufacturing, that kind of stuff. I wanted to hear from you on how effective you think these initiatives have been and going forward and looking at issues such as infrastructure, um, digital skills and literacy and so on. What kind of policy initiatives do you think are needed to solve these problems? So, you know, I think um, I think it's great that we're handing out laptops and phones and all of these things. It's good. I mean, it can't hurt, right? The more people that have access to sort of devices, the better for the overall economy. But I think, um, you know, like like a lot of schemes, things can be misused. I get a laptop and then I go to the market and I flip it. I get cash. I don't need the laptop. I need the money. So we see a lot of that sort of stuff happening. So I think, I think you know, intention, intention is good, but probably maybe there's smarter ways that we can spend that quantum of sort of, of money. And I'm a firm believer 
that if we have powerful use cases, people will go out and they will find a way to beg, borrow, and get that smartphone. And we're already seeing it. If you look at household staff in Pakistan, you look at people, they have these phones that are way above their income bracket. Everybody's phones are like way above their income bracket. You have people who are making 60,000 rupees now having these little iPhones. And they've asked somebody or they've made you know, a loan. So people spend more money uh, than they actually have a disposable income for on, on smartphones once they have those use cases. That being said, we need to bring down the cost of those smartphones. There are a number of local providers right now. You know, We've got a lot of cheap Chinese handsets. The used handset market is actually proving to be the most powerful enabler of financial services and electronic online services because you can now go and buy a used decent handset for 5,000 rupees. Not everything works, but it works. So you're finding this aftermarket has sort of addressed this affordability. Yeah, I don't get a brand new smartphone. Mine's two years old, but hey, I can do YouTube. I can browse the web. I can install apps on it. The way to solve this really, and I think a lot of people are working on it, it's going to be solved very soon, is to be able to give me a loan to have a handset. Okay, it costs 20,000 rupees. I can't afford it, but I can afford 3,000 rupees a month. But who's going to give me that loan? Same problem. I'm not documented economy, I'm not, you know, I can't score. But all of that has changed now. And you have a number of schemes coming up where you can basically very reliably give phones for a handset and block that phone, lock that phone. A lot of initiatives going on at a government level talks that if you don't pay back your loan, that you won't be able to use any phone because of your ID card and all of that. So I'm very optimistic. I think this accessibility challenge is going to solve itself. I don't mean to sound too optimistic, but once these use cases in this economy grow for SMEs and people at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, that headset is no longer a luxury. It's an essential. And if you don't have a mobile phone with internet access, you today are being left behind very quickly. No, I absolutely agree. Because when you look at the digital inclusion problem, a big component of that is relevance. They simply have not in the past been enough relevant apps or contact, content or products that compel people to go out and spend money on a smartphone. But that is definitely, as you said, rapidly changing. So on my next question, why technology is an excellent tool for us to develop these entirely new products and services that were previously unthinkable. We also need to be conscious in the design of those solutions to ensure that we're building products that are inclusive and accessible rather than products that just reinforce existing inequalities. So for example, we've talked about the gender gap in financial inclusion quite a bit. Women's financial inclusion continues to be a challenge. It's pretty persistent. And as we're increasingly using digital solutions to solve the financial inclusion problem, could we maybe risk deepening the divides because women still fare significantly worse than men when it comes to digital access and literacy? So I wanted to get your thoughts on how do you bring gender awareness or awareness of other inequities as well into some of your products and services? And maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience with Rosie and Rosegar on that as well. That's such a great uh, answer of PowerPoint you just made. There are a few things I want to say here. First, I'll tell you what we're doing. Um, you know, Rosie uh, works very closely with World Bank, and we've done a number of World Bank projects uh, related to gender equality and increasing females in the workforce. And one of the things we've done is we've uh, done this practical 
sort of experiment on our live jobs platform where we have determined what are the uh, important attributes of a workplace that make it friendly for females. So the whole study we did with employers on this at scale with the World Bank. And once we establish that, then we basically, World Bank is sponsoring um, a certain percentage of salaries if you hire a woman and your workplace meets those attributes. And so now we're testing what sort of increase in, um, you know, workforce inclusion happens as a result of making more female-friendly work environments, which is one of the challenges, and incentivizing employers to hire a woman. Because we know once a woman is hired, uh, you know, in the workforce, uh, the, the organizations who hire a woman for the first time tend to hire a lot more. It works out very well. So uh, that's one thing we're doing. We've been doing a lot of other stuff. Um, you know, one of the other issues is mobility for a woman. And now I'm talking about the workforce specifically. Uh, there is transportation apartheid in Pakistan because it is a taboo for a woman to ride a motorcycle. And a motorcycle is far more cheaper than for a woman to have to ride a Kareem or a Uber or even a bus or, you know, um, a rickshaw. Uh, and it's not safe. So this transportation issue is one of the major challenges of getting women included in the workforce. Then we have all of these other challenges, which are not technology and infrastructure challenges because their brothers have smartphones and are using it. Their fathers do. Why don't they? Well, because many of them actually don't even have their ID card. ID card is not made or ID card is made, but it's with the father or the brother in safekeeping. They're not allowed to have handsets or phones because why? Because, well, then they'll do things and they'll meet somebody and something bad will happen and the family name will go harab. And, you know, they're all really ridiculous cultural nuances that contribute to uh, this big gap. And I think that's what needs to be attacked. It's not that you don't have a tower near a woman. It's just the cultural issues around it. And how do you fight that? How do you fight this sort of male sort of patriarchy and protectionism of a woman that, no, no, you shouldn't have a phone. You shouldn't even have your ID card when you need it. You tell me and I'll make sure it goes to the right place. I'll protect you. Um, the best way to overcome that, and I think we're in a really opportune time. We've got crazy inflation right now. Crazy 40% inflation. You can't, I mean, households cannot manage they need as many incomes as possible. And who benefits the most from internet and smartphone? Is it a man or a woman? I think it's a woman because a woman is not able to drive around, is not able to transport herself, is not able to leave the house. You know, there are a lot of females that we're seeing were like, you know, I'd like to work from home. If I can work from home, I can work. And they're very qualified. So this smartphone has a disproportionate benefit to a woman. A mobile financial account has a disproportionate sort of a benefit to a woman where she can get financial independence and it's not her husband who's holding on to her money and she has to ask for it when he's in the mood, he hands her her money back or like a bit of money. She has her own account now on her phone. And I think the, the, the whole challenge is to get women to see that you need to have a smartphone, you need to open a account, you need to be financially independent. And the male household members, once they figure out that, you know, these women, my sister, my daughter, my wife, 
is now through her smartphone or now laptop, is learning things, is able to freelance, is able to do something, something at home is able to sell them, they're generating income. All of this patriarchy goes out the window. So I think we're at a point where as long as we're able to continue to build useful use cases, women will eventually adopt. But we have a big fight in front of us for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what about, um, so Rosie is doing all this great work in terms of female labor force participation. Um, how about Rosegar? Is there an aspect there? So, you know, this is where we see the gender divide really in full force. Uh, okay. About 21% of Rosie's members are female, right? And it's fairly in line with the national average in the workforce. So it's very much reflective. But when you go to Rose Gar, that number drops down to something like 6%. So as you go down the pyramid, uh, the number of women who are comfortable, have access to internet, have access to smartphone, declines dramatically. When we talk about inclusion, it's not amongst the top of the pyramid. People in DHA, if you're a woman in DHA, you've got a smartphone. You don't have that issue. It's a woman in the village issue. And it is at the bottom of the pyramid that we see this issue. So um, I think... Uh, that is where most of the impact is going to be made. And again, once we give very useful use cases, which are, I promise you, around the corner, next two years, the kind of things you're going to see are going to be phenomenal. Uh, I believe that the number of women with smartphones and internet access is going to increase, not because people want it to, because it's a necessity and they'll need it to survive. Yeah, yeah. and the use case will be very clear for them. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, there's a lot of buzz about recent technological developments, especially ChatGPT. So looking beyond ChatGPT itself, AI, ML, and large language models and other technologies can enable powerful new use cases, and they're becoming pretty critical to businesses that want to stay relevant and competitive. So looking at some of these emerging trends, including cloud adoption, AI, ML, blockchain, and so on, do you think Pakistan's startup ecosystem is currently well-positioned to adopt these new technologies? Extremely well-positioned. And Pakistani startups should be jumping on this, jumping on it because it's easy and it's cheap now to do incredible, powerful AI without a team of data scientists. And I'll give you an example. Uh, just recently, we launched this freelance platform. We launched it on August 14th, a few days ago, called Azadi. And it's basically uh, to enable people to create extra income by spending their weekend, evening hours on doing things that they're skilled at. And these are highly skilled people now we're talking about. One of our challenges has always been, how do I know that you really have the skill you say you have? Because one of the perpetual problems we've had since we launched Rosie was people apply to every job. You're not qualified for it. You're applying for the job of a CEO and you're just doing like your ACCA or something, you know. And uh, that whole spam makes it very difficult for uh, people who are hiring to trust your platform because there's so much noise. Even though you may have, might have three great people, the 1,000 idiots make it impossible to find those three. So that matching is very important. So um, we always had this dream of let's create skill tests. Every skill you enter, let's create a test for it and see if you really have that skill. 
So we started doing it, hired a bunch of domain experts, make little tests for PHP and tests for marketing and social media. It's not scalable. It doesn't have because there's so many skills and they change so quickly and there's so many permutations that it never really made a dent because it was so fragmented. In one week, using chat GPT APIs, we coded this platform now on our freelance platform that whenever you enter a skill, it dynamically generates you an MCQ test that self-grades. So within an instant, I can tell if you have that skill. Now, imagine how much money I would have spent to build this kind of technology before large language models and chat GPT. I try. Two years, lots of money. We don't have the expertise. Super hard to get right. This is now available for everybody. So we have now plugged in AI and LLMs in virtually every piece of our business. And the sort of efficiency and optimize, uh, uh, you know, um, optimization that we've done through that has been mind-boggling. So if you're a Pakistani startup, you should be all over this. There's so many things you can do. And guess what? Uh, Chat GPT speaks Urdu. Who taught it Urdu? No one did. It learned itself. Uh, the things that these LLMs can do today, like ChatGPT can do today, it couldn't do 15 days ago. It's learning so quickly. It's it learned other languages. Today, I can have I can give ChatGPT instructions in Urdu, and it can respond to me in Urdu. This is incredible, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I'm a big believer in AI. I'm a huge uh, fan of LLMs, and I'm super excited about the future of the sort of things we can do to help our people. The magic wand just got a lot longer. So while this is great for startups, clearly, how do you think it might impact the freelancing industry and the outsourcing industry in Pakistan? Do you think there's a fear that some of those jobs might get taken as you know, AIML is becoming stronger? And should there be some kind of reskilling initiatives happening to prevent that? Well, the second part of your question, should there be reskilling? There should be skilling and reskilling like crazy. We've got a very large population. Uh, it's a huge asset. You have about 2 million people entering the workforce. We can't educate them fast enough. And one of the things we've learned is skill-based jobs are the future. If you have a skill that you've learned for three months and worked hard at and you know it, all of a sudden you don't need that bachelor's uh, that sort of BS degree from LUMS anymore because now you're very good at MERN program. You've learned to do it through a boot camp or online on YouTube and you get one or two projects. You are as good as anybody. You're flying. And it's not just these highly sort of uh, technical things. It's video editing. It's graphics design. Um, so, so yes, we need to be consistently giving local language education. We need to translate those courses on Coursera and Udemy into easy to understand Urdu and Punjabi and Sindhi and all of our local languages. Not that hard to do, by the way. It's not that hard to do. And once you do that, you are upskilling. And now there's so much opportunity in Pakistan for freelancing. These 100,000 employers we have are all looking for some short-time help because they can't afford to hire a large team of employees in this economic climate. They want people to do small little skill-based tasks. More importantly, it opens up this global market. We're already among the top five nations of freelancers globally. So now it's, it's, it's not uncommon today to hear about some young individual in a gal who is now doing freelancing for projects internationally 
at home as a good internet link and is making eight lakhs a month. That's not uncommon. There's so many cases of stuff like that happening. So I think um, the threat of AI to freelancing, I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think AI is going to propel uh, freelancing. It's going to make it easier and accessible because this is now manual work. We've got lots of people. So now if I'm a freelancer, I had a certain skill set before, right? I could make good artistic drawings on my Photoshop. I learned Photoshop. But now my customer says, give me this data in XML format, convert it to JSON. Like, what the hell is that? I don't know how to do it. Guess what? You can go to ChatGPT right now, throw in some data and say, convert this to XML or to JSON. And boom, it's done. I don't need to study and learn that anymore. So now I can extend the range of services that I offer. So I think uh, AI is particularly good for economies like ours, where you have people of, at the bottom of the knowledge curve who are moving up, and this is going to pull them up much, much faster. Great. So looking at the digital policy landscape, um, if we, where, what are your thoughts on where we're falling behind and the priorities that the, maybe the top three priorities that the government should focus on now? And I think you've talked about skipping quite a bit, and that could be one of them. Um, but if you were to say, what are the top three priorities for the government to focus on to enable this digital economy in Pakistan? What, what would those be? Well, to me, you know, this might not be uh, kind of conventional wisdom, but I strongly believe that government can really accelerate those use cases we were talking about earlier. Everybody does some sort of a use case with the government, whether it's paying a bill or a chalan or a service or whatever. And government is slowly adopting technology. It's, you know, some, there's, there's, a, there's like a department and they've got like IT board has done something for them. They've built stuff, but they never really work. They don't talk to each other. People don't use them, like bypass them. We need a digital strategy for the government, e-government. And if you just look very close, you look at UAE, you look at the Saudis, what the Saudis have done in sort of e-government is mind-boggling. They've built this common layer across all of the departments in the government and they've brought their systems online and they're interconnected. If I get a, if I have a rental car and I'm driving and I get a speeding ticket and then I'm flying out of the country, I can't fly out of the country because I have a speeding ticket at the time I'm exiting. Hey, you've got a speeding ticket and the rental firm already knows that. You know, so it's all interconnected. It's not that hard to do. So I think uh, for a government, it's super important to bring themselves up online and provide services online. It will help increase the adoption of the technology. It will help their efficiency and transparency. No doubt they need it. There's a whole informal <laughs> economy there that you're going to disrupt, which is good, but that's where you're going to get the friction. Um, and the other thing is every government service that you pay for there must be a way to pay in a digital manner for that service. There must be. There, there shouldn't be anything that I have to go to Andrun share and find a little office and fill out a chalan and wait in a waiting room and pay a bill. Uh, so that's, that's also very, very important. And you know what? If I was a government, which I'm not, and um, we should subsidize online payments. We should make it cheaper. Why? Because the collection cost is less. Imagine I have to maintain offices. I've got paper flying around. I've got these accountants and vouchers. and It's expensive. So if I pay you in a digital manner, give people incentive back. Make it a little bit less. Watch how this transaction increases. 
watch how smartphone adoption increases because yeah. now it's affecting your bottom line. And these are some great points because when it comes to e-government and some of the uh, the, the question of digitizing those uh, G2B or G2C payments, uh, the building blocks are really already there because the yes. government, um, uh, they launched this cloud first policy last year, which called on the public, all public sector entities to prioritize cloud for future IT procurements. And the state bank launched RAS, which is a switch that anybody can use to digitize payments. Um, and some of the first use cases for that were bulk payments from the government. So I think some of these building blocks are there. And I guess it's a matter of hoping that over the next few years, we'll be seeing some of the dividends from these initiatives. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You're, you're speaking about Ross, and I'm very excited about Ross. And I know you yeah. had a, a like a front row seat and you've been involved in this whole thing. So, you know, <laughs> great job there. Um, well, the most exciting thing that's happening this year in this landscape, in my view, is this uh, Ross P2M payments, the QR code, which now will basically uh, allow anybody with a smartphone who has any sort of a banking app with an easy pesa, Jazz Cash, ABL, UB, whatever you have, you will be able to scan a unified QR code, Ross QR code at any store, and the money will be pulled from your account and put directly into the account of the merchant, right? And this initiative itself is going to dramatically uh, take SMEs and the retail sector and the business sector to a different level because you're creating footprints, you're creating online rails. And once you have that money online in like a digital manner, then there's so many more things you can do with it through online mediums. And if you look at these P2M payment schemes, wherever they've been launched globally, India has UPI. And I think there's Poland had like Blick and Brazil had this other one. They have all been tremendously successful, tremendously. I mean, beyond imagination. And so this is about to happen in Pakistan. And all of the banks and the telcos and the wallets are now running to get their QR code to be the one that the merchant uses. And for their QR code to be the one the merchant uses, they need to give far deeper use cases and a lot more love than they have yeah. been in the past. Yes. Yeah, that is definitely very scalable. Yeah. So we are out of time, but thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's been great to hear your perspective, but it's also been really great to hear how optimistic you are for the future <laughs> and that optimism is infectious. So thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.